Hey, this is Zuri Berry. Before we get to the podcast, I want to tell you why this project is so important to Donnell and me. We started this with the goal of telling the stories of journalists who look like us in this industry we love. We want to recognize talent, celebrate achievement, and give some flowers to some people who are really deserving to have the spotlight put on them. But also, it's really important that we hear from our fellow black journalists at this particular moment in time when our industry has enormous challenges and our presence as commentators, experts, political writers, on-air talent, and investigative reporters seem optional to some. That doesn't sit right with me, and I hope it doesn't sit right with you either. I hope you're here to hear just as much about the successes as you are about the struggles, whether it's the struggle to get that first job to find a space where you feel like you belong, to find the bravery to strike out on your own or to have your voice heard, whether it's about the current state of media or otherwise. And so we want to thank you for supporting us by listening. And we want to ask you for your direct support of the production of this podcast. You can do that by going to buymeacoffee.com slash black journos and donating today. That's buymeacoffee.com slash black journos. You can find the link in the show notes. Thank you. Now, on to the interview. This is the Black Journalists on Journalism podcast, a ZMC podcast production. Welcome back to another episode of Black Journalists on Journalism. Zoe Berry, my partner in crime, and I are back with a special guest. All of our guests are special. But I'm I'm leaning towards this one a little bit more because it's one of my favorite people in journalism. Uh, Nicole Carr uh, of ProPublica and Morehouse College is here with us today. Nicole, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, uh, you're you one of my on. favorites, too. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole There's an Atlanta is... connection going on here. I, listen, I, I, right. I'm excited about this conversation because, Nicole, as I was just saying to you earlier, I want to talk about all the things in terms of getting into investigative reporting and uh, sort of that being a part of your journey. And I, I think it's really difficult. So I want to talk about that. Um, but Donnell, uh, why don't you kick us off here? Yeah, well, I want to um, make sure we stress that it's particularly difficult to get into it for um, a lot of black journalists. I don't know if people feel like they can't or aren't being ushered that way in school or whatever. And it feels like when you go to conventions or what have you, you don't see a ton of us there. Why is that, Nicole? You know, that's a good question. I was in my, what, early 30s in 2017 when I went to my first IRE convention. Right. Uh, I didn't know what IRE was at the time, investigative reporters and editors. And I was in a top 10 market, had been to, through several TV stations. I knew that I sought to do that type of work and I always wanted to report deeper than the, you know, the day to day and the quick hits right. and had been introduced to the I team when I was in North Carolina and covering Fort Bragg, but had I had no idea about this conference. And I, I considered myself well versed in the in the industry. And I said, Oh, when I got there to it, Orlando, I said, Oh, this is where everyone comes for the jobs, for the talks, for the everything. And so I'd been lifelong in ABJ and obviously like an NABJ baby had been brought up through NABJ. Um, and had never been introduced to investigative reporters, black investigative reporters. I, I can remember the Duke lacrosse 
scandal and, and seeing uh, Darla Miles at the time. She was at WTVD in Durham. She's now in New York at ABC7. And um, Tamara Gibbs, it, and Tamara ends up being my colleague years later. But I remember watching them from a smaller market. Oh, no, this is high school. This is high school now. Like I'm going into college and I'm watching them. And I said, whatever they are doing, the way they're breaking this story down, the way they're digging deeper, like they they are badass. I want to be, I want to be like them. But so in terms of role models, I would say I, I saw people doing some things I wanted to do, but they weren't even dubbed investigative reporters. They didn't have the title. And a lot of people will tell you a title is not important, but let me tell you, a title comes with um, a schedule, a purpose, a salary. Um, so I, I, I really hate when I hear news managers tell you, oh, a title doesn't matter. Awards don't matter. They matter to you all because that's that's how you measure. That's how you elevate people. And that's um, that's how people are recognized to new folks in the industry and new ideas and that's how they're tapped. And, but I wasn't a speaker at an investigative conference until it might've been 2019. Was it 2019 at IRE? And people were like, Oh my God, that was so good. And (laughs) one of the few, few black speakers. And I'm like, I haven't changed. My work hasn't changed, but you could have had me on years ago, but, but a title changed. I I had a Mm. title. And I had some access to things and people and resources. So now all of a sudden I'm Nicole Carr, investigative reporter, and I've been doing that work. And so it does matter. Those things do matter because they measure something in the industry. So. Yeah. Look, 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 we're only a few minutes into this conversation. You've already spoken a word. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you something that it does matter. The title does matter. It opens doors in a way for career opportunities that people you know, maybe not have been available to them before. And and there's something that you said there about, you know, you're sort of doing the work or you're in your day to day and whatnot. There's so many of us that are trying to get away from breaking news, get away from spot news and do more in-depth work, meaningful work. I think that's mm-hmm. a big part of our industry. But let me yeah. take a step back here because I'd love to learn about how you first got the bug to become a journalist. Uh, you went to Winston-Salem State. Yes, right? Rams. Go Rams. And, <laughs> yeah. And you, and you majored in mass communications. This is for your undergrad. You obviously got a master's degree. But, but talk to us about that time period of your life and how you decided that journalism or communications was where you wanted to go. So I was either going to be Claire Huxtable and an attorney or... I can't see. I'm blind as a bat. And I thought maybe I'll be uh, an ophthalmologist and help people see. (laughs) But I really wasn't great at the math and science. And then the way that I would kind of get close to my dad, my dad was uh, an army officer. He was in special operations and we moved 10 times before I was 16. And I really cherished the time that I had for kind of to feel connected with him whenever he was home. And so one way you could connect with my dad is two ways. In the kitchen, because he loves to cook. He, he's, that's his labor of love. Or if he was sitting next to him while he was watching TV in the evening. And so that TV was always on um, CNN. It was always on the news. And so I would just sit to be near him. I would sit 
sometimes in the den or whatever and watch the news and just be aware of, of what's going on. And b- both of my parents were really, you know, back in the day, the way uh, television news was uh, appointment TV, that was a thing. My, my grandparents lived outside of D.C. The Washington Post was on the doorstep every morning. And so when we would visit the newspapers in front of views, I had like media literacy was important in the family. And so I, I started looking to that, but my real, my aha moment is in the eighth grade or was in the eighth grade. We lived in Panama, Central America. We were there at the end of the canal treaty. And I had a social studies teacher tell me she wanted me to write an article on a, a special guest who was coming to speak to the middle school. He came to Corundu Middle School and it was Terrence Roberts, a member of the Little Rock Nine. And so Terrence Roberts came and told us uh, their story and I got to write an article about it and then caught the bug and would start writing articles for the base newspaper. And then the summer before 10th grade, my parents let me go to um, Cambridge University. I traveled to England and studied abroad by myself to study journalism in a summer program at Cambridge. And then I was editor in chief of the high school paper two high schools, then college, the News Argus at Winston-Salem State, RIP to that. Um, we're going to figure out a way to get the campus paper back. It died mm-hmm. before the pandemic. And uh, that was it. So I would say from eighth grade on, that, that was that initially. A lifer. <laughs> yeah, a lifer. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I loved, loved Connie Chung and then fell in love with Soledad O'Brien in college and got to meet her and then yeah, so I started seeing those people. And I would keep like a notebook of people doing things that I wanted to do. And this is funny. I think it's still at my mom's house, but I would clip like their profiles or a magazine article about them. And I said, well, she's an editor of a magazine and she's on television, but she writes books. And I was like, I want to do all of this, but it didn't have a name. It really was multimedia journalism. Before we call but- it that. Yeah, but people weren't doing, you picked a path, right? And then that's what you worked in. And now, of course, the landscape is totally different. So I guess I could see ahead maybe into the future. Or I was was wishing for that before it was a thing. And it's a thing. Nicole, you'd be surprised how many of our guests vote for the high school newspaper, the college newspaper. That feels like a lot of people have taken that path and kind of got that bug early in life yeah. and took those routes. That's really cool. Yes, yes. And just having people encourage you and, and mm-hmm. do that. Oh, the Fayetteville Observer back home in North Carolina, do that in high school and during the summers. Um, so, yeah, it's it was you catch the bug early, I think. Mm-hmm. So. There was a, a period of time where you went from Winston-Salem to Syracuse and you got your master's in broadcast journalism. And then you started on a on a run of all these North Carolina TV stations. And how cool is that to be working at home? I'm sure there were difficulties along with that because some of these are small stations. But, oh, yeah. but talk to us about that that time. And difficulties to the tune of 18500 a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First salary. For real. That's uh, yeah, that's difficulty. But, yeah. uh, you know, when you have the drive and you don't have the, the responsibilities and and you absolutely need support. Um, you know, a friend and I 
of mine who's now a morning anchor, my best friend is a morning anchor in DC. Uh, her name is Jumiola Labanji, and she started oh, out. Yes, it's my best, my best friend. And we met through NABJ on a plane to the student projects to Atlanta. And mm-hmm. we, we said on the plane, I said, one day I want to report in Atlanta. And she said, I want to be back home in DC. And, and, and that's what we did. And we were that? just in college at the time. And shout out to Greg Lee. He put us on a, a NABJ past Man, president. He, he, he gets a lot of shout outs on this podcast. Greg. Separation on this podcast. <laughs> let me let me yeah. give a shout out to Jumi and her husband as well. Darren, he's good people. And me, me and him they, go back. <laughs> oh, you do? Okay. So we yeah. were just in Panama together on a family vacation for spring break. Nice. Darren, Jumi, and the family. So yes. Cool. And we all met on the student projects. Like, yeah. you don't know. You could be meeting your husband, your wife, or whoever <laughs> while you're... <laughs> While you're out here trying to cut your teeth into the business. But we used to talk about why some of our our black counterparts did not stay in the business. Like a lot of people got that first job or maybe made it to the second market and then said, you know what, for various reasons, I'm out. But a big reason is when you don't have the support, when you cannot afford to stay in that arena and just like chase your dreams <laughs> and you contractually you can't work a part-time job because whatever especially on air where your image belongs to the station and like they can't see you at the as a barista at starbucks or working retail on the weekend you some people and a lot of times it falls on us and we know the stats behind generational wealth and, and student loan debt or whatever we literally cannot afford you to, to pursue the career and I don't think that is talked about enough but when you know what I mean and so fortunately I, I so I'll always say my support system was there you know I can remember not wanting to go to Indianapolis for NABJ I think that was oh six 2006 yeah yeah that. yeah yeah and my dad was like I wire you the money. I pay the registration. Like if, if I if I didn't have it, my mom says, yeah. "Don't worry about this. I'm sending you whatever an outfit. I need because you know this is your career. We go yeah. and we want to yeah. impress, um, present ourselves. And right? That's when, we, that's when the conferences were you're huge with those with those career. You know, the expo was big. Yeah, it's when the ladies didn't uh, were still wearing their heels. I think we've gotten past that. I think we are seasoned enough to know you can step into the <laughs> conference to, with you that. You don't have, lady. You don't have to do that. Same difference. Yeah, but we're we're past that. We're past yeah. that. Uh, we're into our natural hair and, and giving our feet a, a a rest when we <laughs> when we go. But yeah, so I went to Wilmington for I, I believe. I, I like to throw sat. Can we talk money? Yeah, sure. Yes, okay. please. I'll, yeah. tell you, I'll tell you mine too. When back that back at that back point in time, because it wasn't no good. <laughs> it was, it was, funny it was for no me. good. It's yeah. funny to talk about it now. So I'll, I'll be glad to talk about it now. It wasn't funny yeah. then. Yeah. It, no, it's 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 not fun. So so first market eighteen five twenty contract on on the years, and I left after a year and a half. Second market was a thirty two thirty four in Greensboro. North Carolina. I thought I was rich. 3234. Nashville was a 45. Then I got, I quit, got married, had a, my first baby, took a year off and returned to the market I was in for the same salary, expanded role, but 45 in the triad. 
and then went to North Carolina on, I went to the Raleigh market, but I was covering Fayetteville, my whole hometown on a 74, 77, 80 on first contract. And if I'd re-signed, would have gotten into the six figures by the end of the second contract and came to Atlanta, had three contracts. That was one had to do with the raise we were getting from an overtime law or whatever. So, And this is WSBTV. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is unconventional to to say this, but as as a GA in 2016, it, we were on a like a, a 132, 30, 134 something, and then investigative, I I topped out over uh, at 150 at by the end of the contract, and then took um, a slight pay cut to come to ProPublica, but I was playing the long game with my career. And I can say that it all has come back to me and exceeded things because of the different things that I am able to do. So it wasn't like a money move and it wasn't a a terrible cut, but digital is different from television. And I definitely have have, um, a different workflow. Uh, You see me Sitting at home, right? Like that's not happening. Well, you don't TV have the pressure world. of the the daily churn mm-hmm. and deadlines mm-hmm. and, and all of those things and mm-hmm. specials and whatever right. it is during during right. those seasonal public appearances, right. public yeah, appearance, like all of that. And I still do those things, but to my own, you know. And it, you can't put a price. My old schedule. You can't mm-hmm. put a price on the time you get to spend with your family either. That's now, right. Compa- that's right. And that's right. And we had had our third uh, child. I was, um, he was four months old when we, thank you. Yeah, he was four months old when we locked down. And so lockdown did a, a lot. Lockdown, politically, what we've been going through in the country, socially, you know, you start thinking about life a little differently. And also, I really understood that I wanted to do journalism differently, that mm-hmm. it was time for me to evolve. And so I've had done what I came to do in local TV after 15 years. It was time for me to evolve as a journalist. And I made a very non-traditional move that I'm really happy about. So can we can we dig into that just a little bit? Because I feel like there's a a piece there that, you know, will help give us some clarity. Mm-hmm. How did you, one, get the first opportunity to start doing what we would put in air quotes as investigative work? Like, wh- where, what did that happen at? Did you get support doing that? Like, how did that come about? And then, of course, how did you leverage that through your career and it, particularly in broadcast TV? And obviously, it puts mm-hmm. you in a position to be at a place now like ProPublica. Sure. So I can remember really honing in on Fort Bragg and Fayetteville, my, my hometown. I really wanted to to make a stop there. And the timing was perfect. The two men who had occupied that bureau had been there since I, the, like the year I was born. And so, no, seriously, like Gilbert Bays and, and Greg Barnes, like they were ABC 11's bureau. So Gilbert at 
left. And it just so happened that I'd been in contact with, and I would tell journalists this all the time, especially in TV, because I just got a call for advice the other day. Like, stop, do not wait for someone to post a job for mm. you to start sending your material or asking about a position or or whatever. The, me landing at TBD at the time had come after years of being in contact with the news director. Timing wasn't right some other times. And sometimes I just wanted feedback, whatever. So he wanted, it was hard to fill that bureau because Fayetteville, unless you're military connected, a lot of people don't really desire to live there. They're going to want to live in Raleigh or Durham. But I, I wanted to go back home. That was perfect for me. And I saw Fort Bragg. Why would you pass up the chance to cover the largest military installation in the world, right? So that's a game changer for your for your career. And I could speak the language and, and whatever. Right. So I came, I came around the time that military sex assaults became uh, very important to Congress and how we investigated those and how we did. So I ended up covering some of the, the first big court marshals. General Jeffrey Sinclair, uh, his trial, and, and w- because I was able to go in and understand how a military panel is chosen versus a jury in the civilian courts, I could translate the court martial to your experience in civilian courts. And so that led to ABC News Radio using our reports, writing for CNN Digital, and really putting your reports on that kind of national stage. And we were doing investigations tied to Fort Bragg and 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 court marshals and soldiers and whatever. And all of a sudden, one day during sweeps, my assistant news director was like, I saw a promo. No, I saw a promo. It was an I-team promo and I was in it. I was like, am I on the I-team? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, got, like, I forgot well, to tell you. <laughs> yeah, he was like, well, that story oh, yeah. is airing as an investigation. And I knew it was an investigation, but I hadn't been, I didn't have the title, wasn't on the team. And it was, it was some report we were doing. And all of a sudden I was turning for, for the I-team, which was on my tape for WSB, which got us to having the conversation during the interview. There was no opening, but there was an anticipated opening the following year. And so she's like had me in the back of her mind. Mm. Um, at the same time, that was around the time that Cox had uh, committed itself to helping diversify the ranks of investigative reporting. Mm. There was a reporter here named Erica Byfield who headed off to New York. Mm. And she was one of two women on the team and the only black investigative reporter on the team. And I stepped into Erica's position, not immediately, a, a year after I'd proven that I could do the work, which I, which I did over and over again, and so then I was named. Um, there was a lot that was said in that sort for of real. Space, no right? words yet. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah. So that was on you, balls in your court, and and that was, I believe, the plan from all along because we had talked about it, but it wasn't mine until you know, the following year. And that's when I was introduced to IRE. And I was like, oh, this is where you all come. And I didn't see anyone. And we know it's it's such an aha moment because we know like Topher Sanders, Corey Johnson, Ron Nixon, Nicole Hannah-Jones are sitting at this conference, right? And they say, we're always the only ones here. And that was the truth. I think she may have been speaking that year before I even really knew Nicole. 
Mm-hmm. And that's how the, the idea for the Ida B. Wells Society came about, like us seeing the same handful of people every year. And now IRE looks totally different, like a few, five, six years down the, the road. And I was looking at pictures from the conference the other day. We're not, it's going on right now. I went to another investigative conference this year and, and skipped out on IRE, but it's, it's a lot more diverse than it, than it used to be. So that's, that's how it, it happened. Just doing the work. And, and if I'm being honest, besides my desire to tell more in depth stories, I also knew differentiating myself in the newsroom was a path to having a manageable schedule for uh, everything, uh, more money, more time to work on things occasionally. I feel like, you know, they say these titles don't matter. I feel like when you deliver and you have a title, like people listen to you a different mm. way, in a different way. They respect what you say. You Have you ever been the go-to person in the newsroom? Like, well, you know, if Nicole will say this, it's going to, going to hit a little differently than if if I do like we we can help each other in those ways by utilizing whatever the perception of you and your opinion on on coverage and being a, a newsroom leader whatever that is but you should take advantage of it I'm not saying it's right for that to be the measure of of how we should listen or 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 who whose voice matters or any of that stuff. But we are lying to ourselves if we say that these newsrooms don't put some sort of, they don't value that. Well, let me follow up on this just a little bit here, because what you just described, it, it wasn't like, you know, you definitely had a conversation and it was like, it was going to happen for you. It was like, oh no, we're just going to throw you in. And then all of a sudden you're doing the work. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, They are, you know, and this is a good reason why the Ida B. Wells Society exists. They don't know what that path is. It is very murky for all of us to sort of say, how do we transition from, I don't want to be a digital producer anymore. I want to be a reporter. I don't want to be a reporter anymore. I want to be an editor. I I want to get into investigations. I want to get off the breaking news desk, the trending team, whatever it is. Like, how can I do that? And and so my question for you is, what are your thoughts about that? Because I, I think it's, it's one difficult to explain that, but also like, how do you put processes in place for newsrooms to figure that out? So you should always remember that, you know, there's a possibility that wherever you are planted, it it may not be wherever your seeds are planted. It may not be where your harvest comes. It may not, but what you, you can only control what you can control. And so if they're saying, well, we don't have any openings or the makeup of this team is the way we want it and there's no room for this or whatever, that does not stop you from doing the work. You can still, even when your daily grind, right, you can pick away. Investigations aren't, they aren't quick. They're not easy. You can pick away. You can carve out, have a FOIA Friday, right? <laughs> have a FOIA Friday where I say on Fridays, I'm just going to get into the newsroom at eight o'clock instead of starting the day at nine and I'm filing and I'm looking at my spreadsheet and keeping track of what I filed because the stories, you you start developing the story then. And you'll say, I used to do this all the time at Channel 2 because we had a saying, pitch which you can turn, like you had to come in ready for the day. And it's a media group for you. Exactly. (laughs) And so 
I would be with, especially some of my favorite photographers, I'd say, hey, before we grab lunch, do you mind if we make a stop here and can you save this interview for me or whatever? And I would be building another story and nothing to do with the, the day's work. But that's one interview out of the way. I got the FOIA and all of a sudden I might have come to the meeting with the first draft of the story and they didn't know it but I'm pitching it for the first time because you tell mm. me pitch what I can turn. I've already got the story. It took a little more work on Tuesday. It took a little more work last month on one day or, but if you, if you, if you say I'm going to carve out the time to build and do the type of work I want to do, that's cool. I mean, I can remember being a GA reporter. I I never submitted for the Emmys and stuff. And I knew the the station valued that, right? I mean, I, and I, it was a goal of mine. I was like, before I leave local news, I would like to, you know, at least be nominated to be in the mix. And I can remember like filing live shots. I knew I was a really good live reporter. Like all that walk and talk and explain things to you and, and talk off the cuff. I can, I can do that for you. I can break something mm-hmm. down. You tell me how much time I have and I'm gonna break it down for you and that thing's gonna be sweet. And I'm gonna toss it back to you. And so I knew... Every time I had that good live hit, I was putting it away and, and nobody's submitting for you. At, at least I'm brand new. Like I'm not in the mix for submissions, but I was like, I, I'm damn good at live. And that's what I did. I submitted my own and then I was at the table, you know, within a year. And that was the first of, of several. And so I don't wait on people to submit for my the awards or to give me a title or to do like you're gonna see, I can do the damn thing, and you're gonna, you're gonna see it. Like if I decide I'm gonna do it, then that who's stopping you? Who's not? And, and then if they, if if someone doesn't recognize you in that space, you now have what you need to move on. If that's what you want to do, you now have the portfolio to move on. But if you're sitting there waiting for somebody to give you a chance, baby, <laughs> you're gonna be. You're going to be waiting for a whole lot. I have never allowed my career or my aspirations to hinge on a manager, on a a station, on call letters, on an organization. I'm always five years ahead. And I don't and I don't talk about it with anybody except those who I I need to 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 get. Yeah. To get wisdom from to 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 learn something so I know how to navigate something or if I need to plant a seed of inspiration for someone else, that's when I talk. But you really, I don't, I don't talk about mine. But that's, I have a whole journal and all kinds of stuff. I'll talk to myself before I talk to a lot it of sounds people. Like, it sounds like you, you, just, you just give us another word there. And, it, and mm-hmm. it, it's about initiative, taking initiative. Yeah in your career, in your work, and all of those things. And yeah, it, it does take more time. Yeah, it does take more effort. It may, you know, elongate your day, but right. the benefits are you're in control of the things that you want to do in your career yes. in the long term. Yes, and you can't wait till it's time to go, too. Just for yes. folks who are under contract, like, you always have to be playing a long game. I don't think there's any other choice because then then you're putting power back into the hands of of people and institutions and in places that should not have that type of power over your desires or what you see for yourself. So, Nicole, I wanted to ask you, you were talking a minute earlier about people you talked to. Who are some of those mentors that you had that you did that talking to 
because you knew mm-hmm. it would stay safe with them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good question. So, you know, in, in different seasons, I have different people because as you're elevating or moving through different spaces, there are different people who will understand that part of the journey. And so I've had some great uh, producers or a news, I've had a great news director that I, I even called him before I transitioned from local TV to ProPublica. His name is Rob Elmore. I, he's now general manager at WTVD. I respect him so much. And, and he's seen me grow through the years that I, I say, hey, Rob, what do you think of it? Like, and we don't have to talk for a year, two years, and I'll pick up the phone and say, well, what do you, what do you think about this? For money, I call, I call different people. I, you should investigate salaries and, and benefits the way you're, you investigate a story. Like, I, I can't even pinpoint one person, but I'll, I'll say, hey, when you moved in this year under this company or whatever, what was that? Like, I'll, I'll research a, a salary, signing bonuses, that, that sort of thing with multiple people. I have longtime good friends. Of course, well, Jumi is my go-to for everything. We, sh- we share. Right. We share everything. But she's like, a, she's a sister. I have a really, really good agent now who, who, be real with you, was not going to make a dime off me going to ProPublica, but who could see my vision and then played a huge role in helping me curate the next stage. And so she had also been evolving as an agent. And so she wasn't just reviewing TV contracts. She was cutting book deals. She was doing things. And so she was in a space, too, that, I mean, she literally called me one day because I'd been talking about writing a book. And she said, are you ready to meet with a, a lit agent? I'm like, when? Well, can you have a proposal ready next week? I lied. Yeah. I, can ha- I had my own notes, but I did not have a proposal, proposal together. The proposal together. And I shaped it up. And then he helped me shape it up. And then we sold the book. So, like, having people who can who can say... Yeah, I believe in that. And I remember her saying, you know, go try something different. If it give it a year. If it's like, oh, this isn't gonna work out, you know how to do this, you know how to do that. So just having people who know you and and kind of I, I can't say it enough. I keep saying who can play the long game with you. I'm not, you know, I'm not out here for a pickup game. I'm you know, I have quite a few friends in TV. And I know it's a difficult thing to find a good agent. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you find one, you keep them right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I say, try, shout out to Tracy Wilkes Smith. She is my, um, I, I consider her an agent and a friend. So she's done a lot in a few years. Yeah. Gotcha. Can you talk to us a little bit about the book? Because I mm-hmm. read that in your bio that <laughs> you have a book coming out in 2024. And well, if you could just walk us through what it is, and, you know, again, we, we for those listening on audio, she just crossed her fingers. <laughs> just talk to us about what this process is going to be like, because there's, there's a lot going on here. I actually I actually owe my editor a few chapters uh, that she'll be reviewing next week because I, I am working and in, in writing in my my free time, for those who can't see, I'm putting free time in quotations, uh, air quotes, writing uh, this book. Well, 
I, uh, during the, the pandemic, was able, the short of it, was I was able to find my great-grandfather's medical school records from Howard University in the wake of the first pandemic and became very interested in the plight of Black physicians and the parallels between what was happening 100 years ago and what happened now. And as we talk about racial inequities in health, the, the role that systemic racism and, yes, the way these systems have played a role in us having some of the same outcomes over a century. And so, Wait, it, so this, but this, this, mm-hmm. this is during the Spanish flu. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, that, that time period. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. so I was and there. You still and, had the journals. Huh? I, the I, I, I the found, journals. Uh, well, it, I found the Howard and, you know, this is so important and they're in the middle of a process of preserving uh, black press archives, but I was able mm-hmm. to find over 300 articles with a mention of him and kind of plot. A, a journey and understand what was happening. You know, a lot of people did not write about what happened during the first pandemic. It's mm-hmm. it's hard for us to to imagine they're not going to have, you know, 100 years from now, they will definitely know what we felt and what we thought during sure. this pandemic. That's not the case then. So I was able to use press archives in, in, the, in Howard University and archives about social unrest and, 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 racial uh, issues in the country at that time and really say, I started thinking, God, there's so much that is similar. I'm, I'm really into paralleling. I, I am a fan uh, or proponent. Uh, you have to have historically informed reporting. Like that's just my, in, in my journalism, I feel that way. And so I was seeing the same thing here. I said, well, I want to write this in a narrative form through the lens of a black physician at the time, what, you know, parallel this between 1918 and, and 2020. So that's what I'm doing. It's a massive project that I'm very passionate about. And I, I hope to see that in 2024, maybe, maybe 25. Right. <laughs> I know, I know how these projects work. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh! Can I can, yeah. let me bend, let me bend down really quickly? I know people can't see, but I went to Victor Luckerson's book talk at the Gathering Spot. This and oh. the bill from the fire just came out, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at this. I don't know how many pages in. We're, I mean, we're close to like 600 here, right? Just over 600. Mm-hmm. And he's he's talking about having moved out there in 2017 or 2018 to start writing this book. I said, did your contract always have the same? due date for your manuscript and he said oh no we we delayed this twice (laughs) make you feel better good and bad at the same time don't know that i i don't know what the few this is new for me uh, uh, you know book writing process first book and so and so we'll see but when whenever it does come out i hope maybe we can talk again oh absolutely sure do you have a, a working title? Oh, we do. We're right now. We're working with curable, curable, curable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's a question mark. That's yeah. a question mark. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. I mean, curable is a is. Uh, I mean, titles can change, but the we're yeah. posing the question. Right. Is this Understood. curable? Yes. For those that don't know, Nicole is also an adjunct professor, journalism professor at Morehouse College. So being an HBCU graduate, two-time HBCU graduate, and then 
now contributing to HBCU education. That's got to make you feel great. I just want to know how that all started. When did, when did that idea come up? And you already have been a professor at WSSU, as a matter of fact. The, yeah, I taught a couple of semesters at my alma mater mm. early on. And that was, they had a need and it called me. And that's where the masters came in handy. And I said, sure, you know how, and I was able to develop the course and really kind of develop something that I wish I'd had as I was starting to think multimedia. And so that was really fun. And, and um, what's the name of the course? Well, that was at Winston-Salem State. I was teaching a, it was a, it was a standard news reporting course, but I mixed in writing and I did live shot labs. I did something Mm. for the students who were interested in broadcast as well as those who were looking to break into newspaper newsrooms. And so by then I had done a little bit of both and, and. At Syracuse, we we used to do these live shot labs. And so I just pulled things that had really helped me um, together. But that was years ago. And so Morehouse is a part of my my 2.0. I decided as I was transitioning and as I was playing this long game, and I, I saw myself curating a different phase of my career. I said, I want to get back to the classrooms. Was doing training with Ida B. Wells and, and speaking at conferences and always loved to teach and train and mentor, uh, but it had to be at HBCU. So when I transitioned, I said, at some point, it was that summer, I, I left WSB in May, the end of May, and started at ProPublica in June. And I was sitting um, on the back deck that summer and just writing out goals. And I said, at some point, I want to get back to HBCU and I want to teach journalism. And so I started telling people, I wrote it down, I write everything down, and I started emailing the heads of departments and saying, hey, this is who I am. I now have uh, more time on my hands, more control over my schedule. If you ever have the need for this or a guest lecturer or whatever, you know. And I, Ron Thomas, who's now the department chair of of what is now the Department of Sports, Culture, and Social Justice Journalism Mm -hmm. at Morehouse, hit me back at like midnight on a Friday. Like I had just written the the email. There's no job posting anything. I'm just putting, I'm just speaking this. I'm putting myself out there in the world. And that day, it was a Friday evening. And he said, did you know I was looking for adjuncts? And I said, no. I did not. So they had just received the Jordan Foundation money and were expanding from a sports minor into that, into what is now our major. And he asked me, he initially asked if I could teach a a news writing course. And so I, I got a syllabus together and sent it his way. And then he said, actually, you teach social justice journalism. And I said, well, yeah, I I can't. Now, look, I don't know how many institutions have this course, but I know if you come to my class, I made it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so I said, sure. I said, let me shoot you an idea next week. And it's really no difference. What we talk about in social justice journalism is framing and impact, right? The 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 premise I start on, what I thought of as I was developing this course, I said, there are two things I know. Facts are non-negotiable, but framing is a choice. 
And our framing lent itself, all of our journalism lent itself to social justice. I'm taking all of the politicizing phrases and all of that out of it. What is social justice? It's simple, right? Everything we do in society lends itself to social justice, whether we're talking education, healthcare, access to, to anything, food insecurity, whatever. In journalism, and I don't care what anybody tells you, journalism is a form of activism. And I'm going to tell you why. I don't care what manager doesn't like to hear this or whatever. When you seek to impact, when you seek to for your work to have an some sort of impact. We, we do this all the time. We're going to shine light on something, an injustice, a person, give a voice to the voiceless. We say this in many different forms, but it, it's truly, it's activism through journalism. We seek to reveal something so that someone can do something about it. We don't investigate things because everything is going well. Uh, we don't investigate things because everybody knows, right? We're doing one of two things. We're exposing wrongdoing, injustice, whatever, or we are letting people know something. They had no idea what was going on. We are revealing something. And so when we are framing a story, we choose who is the primary voice in the story. We choose how to enter the story. We choose what to leave out of it. This is all a part of it. We just call it the editing or paring down something or going, but, but we, we're making choices every day about what we put out and how we put it out there. And if we are receiving or getting the impact that we seek, it lends itself to social justice. It lends itself to us being able to navigate a better society. Okay. And that's, that's what, that's what that is. And we do that all the time at ProPublic. And we do it. We do it in all newsroom, but we state we have the mission statement and the thing that promo. So understood, and, and that's remarkable. And I, I just love the way you summarize that. I'm, I'm totally on board with it. Shout out to Ron Thomas, by the way. <laughs> like that's a that's a throwback name for me because he's somebody <laughs> I interacted with way way long ago. He used to be a sports writer at the Marin yes. Independent Journal, and I was yes. an intern at the Marin Independent Journal a long long yeah. long 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 long. long. Long, long time ago, much, much after he had already left. But um, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a good guy to know. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. He's like he's like a Greg Lee, right? Some people yeah. just kind of touch, touch folks across the generations. Mm -hmm. so. Exactly. And, he, mm -hmm. and obviously he's touching a whole new generation now at yes. Morehouse. So it's yes. pretty remarkable to see how he's built that program from the ground up. Yes, um, definitely. So. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of your very recent work and some of the work that maybe that you can share with us that you're doing now. The story that stuck with me and I think stuck with a lot of people was about the Black woman, Cecilia Lewis, <laughs> who was an administrator in schools and, for lack of a better word, was chased out of not one town, but two. <laughs> can you talk to us about how that story came to you? And, and how you sort of went about the reporting process there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will tell you, I was sitting on the phone. It was December of 21. I was sitting on the floor in my room talking to Matt Johnson at WSB. Matt and I were just catching up. And we were talking about how crazy the school board meetings were getting. 
And he was like, you know, there's this lady in Cherokee County, this black woman. She quit her job. She never started that that job. But like, I, f- I feel like, you know, there's more to to that. And I said, I know exactly who you're talking about because <laughs> I'd been thinking about her. I'd been I always think about what I have not heard enough about. In, in stores. And I think when we're talking about enterprising, like your, your natural senses, your curiosity, the things we bring to the table as journalists, like just use that. Right. <laughs> because it was, she wasn't an unknown. There had been a couple of quick, maybe a local story in the Cherokee Tribune. I think she wrote a, a letter saying, you know, why she was leaving or she didn't start. She hadn't started. And so we knew things were crazy at the school board meetings there too. And uh, when we got off the phone, I went to her LinkedIn and I saw something that I'd never seen reported that she came here to Cobb County and had been here for two months. It was on her LinkedIn and she was out. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> Time's up. Yeah. I, I would be on it. I told this to a group I was training. I was like, seriously, my black people in trouble, Spidey senses went on. Like something happened to this woman and she was like a director of social studies. And I knew from some records that I had from reporting on COVID that the CRT stuff was ramping out and I could see board members emails in Cobb County and the way that some people were getting guidance on what CRT was. And all of a sudden Cobb was voting on this thing. This is before we know in a mainstream way what the CRT uproar is about. They were getting uh, guidance. I saw things from like the Heritage Foundation and political, just very politically driven things, seeking support from school board members who started making policies, who started voting on policies that we came, seemingly came out of nowhere. That was around the time she had stepped out of the social studies role. So I started filing records. I started filing records. So I went, well, first I contacted her. She ignored me. (laughs) I didn't hear back. I could see over the months where she was looking at my LinkedIn profile. I have the, you know, premium so I can see who's, who's looking. And I said, okay, maybe she's considering this. So I left that alone, but that's not the only way you report, right? You don't wait for somebody to talk to you. And I, I'd gone to my editor and I said, like, I, I think the story, I think the story will be about, I, I had one observation besides Lewis, that parents were hitting podiums at school board meetings across the country saying the same exact things. And nobody thought that was abnormal. And so my common sense is telling me, like, you don't wake up one day and and say those things. I wanted to know more about the, the what was driving it, the organization behind it, what was what was driving this. And then as a mom of three, two of whom were in the public schools, as a black mother, I said, I didn't get the memo to show up at the school board meeting. And we're very involved parents. So it wasn't making sense to me as outside of my journalistic shoes or what I, I'm like, this is very, this has a this has a face. <laughs> um, and it, it, it seemingly came out of nowhere, but it couldn't have come out of nowhere. So like, what's the deal with this movement? 
So I started filing records in, in, in Cherokee County school district. And I just did a couple of hit words, keywords on the records request. And I think they came back with a quote of $8,000 to get four weeks worth of four weeks worth of emails mentioning Cecilia Lewis. And that's when I knew I said, cause I want to see who is, who was behind driving her out before she started. They're going to complain. They're going to write in. These aren't phone calls that are being made. And so I had to pick a week because we weren't going to pay $8,000. And I said, I picked midweek to midweek encompassing a school board meeting that had gone well. And that's when I found names of people. I found form letters. I say, oh, everybody copy and pasted the same letter in a certain amount of time. So this is getting at what I, you know. Can I just walk through real quick here? Just there's a curiosity that starts here in terms yeah. of and you, yeah. you call it your spidey sense for black people in trouble. Mm-hmm. And I love that. <laughs> but also you immediately start digging in and filing FOIAs. OK, you're yeah. looking for records and that mm-hmm. includes emails in particular. Yes. And so I, there's a there's a thing that happens when you file FOIAs. And this this always happens. It's a frustration of mine. I'm sure it's a frustration of yours. Well, they'll come back and they'll give you some extraordinary dollar amount to get those documents. Mm-hmm. And you have to make a decision whether or not you're going to continue, change the request, do a new request, whatever. And and so it's always interesting to me how you navigate that situation. Yes. And um, and I, I have to navigate it because at this point, I really don't, I still don't have the green light to do the story in my organization. I have an idea that I've talked about, but like, I don't have the memo and the, the, the proof that this is, this is what. I, my spidey senses tell me it is. And in that emails, I'll say this and I'll, and the rest is, is history. But in those emails that I requested, there was a person who had written in and said they were complaining about the rhetoric at a school board meeting that they'd attended and, and said they heard someone say, you know, paraphrasing here is very close to this. Where are the the colors? The colors aren't here because they don't care about their children. And I said, in this year of the Lord, 2022, or whenever that happened in 2021, I said, somebody ask about the colors. Mm. So naturally, I want to call that person. This is in hundreds and hundreds of pages that I got back. And uh, that person returned my call. And that person said, I have something you probably want to hear. And I said, oh, yeah, that person had gone to a clubhouse meeting on a golf course in Cherokee County. They were invited out there and had a recording of a two hour meeting that turned out to be a training session for parents. And I, I had the I had the photo. We did not publish the photo. I had the photo and it was packed with white people not a person of color inside on a Sunday afternoon in a golf course clubhouse in Cherokee County, Georgia. And they were being taught that their children were being demonized for being white. They were being played recordings. They were getting packets of information. They were being told this was ahead of all the legislation that came out. They were being told like what points of contact they had at the state board and in the governor's office they were being coached on their best chances for landing on Fox News. That's where we get the whole quote about Tucker Carlson and how. And I was like, 
it's what it's what I I could not have. You can't make it up, but you you know something. There's like organization. Something had to happen to rally people in a certain way and then get them to do. And then I got access to the private Facebook group through someone, and that's where we saw the fake Cecilia Lewis sightings and the things that they were saying about her family, the way they had researched her. And it, it she still wasn't talking to me. So then I went to Maryland to find her and she still wouldn't talk to me on the record. And she came around after, I think, me being able to tell her that I, I knew a lot of things already. And we were going to do the story, even if she didn't talk, because we had, we had enough to do a really good story. The voices would have been different. We would have entered it through other people. And she came around. And then it turned out to be, it was our most read story last year. And it, uh, to me, a definitive story of how we got into the parental rights. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it, it, it's a story that I read at the time it was published and I was, you know, just struck by. Obviously, I'm here in the D.C. area, so I kept thinking about Loudoun County and I kept right. thinking about the different issues going on in right. Virginia. And so it was just it, it struck a, a nerve, if you will, in terms of impact uh, nationally and sort of the, the revelatory way that an investigation like this does when it tells you about these uh, sort of shadowy efforts and groups. Yeah, so it's it's been very interesting. Right now we're in the middle of publishing a series. Soon after the Lewis story, it started tracking school board meeting arrests and people who had been charged in this space and started a database on that. And so we are publishing narrative chapters out of different places. We've done one out of Arkansas, Conway, Arkansas, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, one that is coming out out of New Jersey in a another one. And a final piece that will be multimedia that will link you to the chapters. But that, that, that led me to want to know more about the space. And so that's how we started the, this series. Tremendous work. And, and it's Thank been you. awarded, correct? That, that, that particular story. Oh yes. The, uh, with the Sydney Cecilia award. Talk. Yeah. Yeah. Sydney award. And it was, it's been nominated in a few spaces. NABJ is coming up. It was nominated at um, EWA. And so, but I think the most important thing for me, like, is that, like, I like to hear that feedback that, oh, I, I learned something or maybe think about where I live and what's happening. And what I tell my students is like, at the end of the day, investigation, a quick turn, whatever it is, uh, we're a first draft of history. So we're going to help whoever comes after us understand this time. So if we think about our work in that way, uh, you know, it's all valuable, but it's important to me to, to, to have a, an accurate record of the time. Absolutely. I felt like it was important to get Miss Lewis's voice in that, though. I think it would have worked if you didn't. But keep on the fact that you kept on going after that makes the story a whole different animal that you had her. Ooh, it, yeah. And I, and I thank her for that. I'm grateful that she that for everyone who whoever speaks to you. Right. What, whatever they they're to. what they don't have to, um, whether 
you know, this this work obviously requires me and I have it no other way to speak with people who think differently. Mm-hmm. You know, but the second chapter in this series was a, a man who has QAnon beliefs and I show up at his front door. He, t- he does not trust media. I have to, I, I don't have a choice but to to try to explain to people why their voice matters, why I need to understand where they're coming from and how it fits into this moment. Again, because I'm I am thinking of the work as a record of the time. And so generally what I, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's it's taxing work. It is it's work that that requires you to have an open mind and understand like the 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 responsibility that's on your shoulders to because a lot of people will say, oh, this is this is leaning this way, this is leaning that way. No, you're gonna hear from from everyone. What you walk away with, fine. <laughs> yeah. But we're gonna we're gonna get to how we got here. And people play roles in how we get to a certain point. Whether you agree with the the character and the role or the method of the the thing, so be it. But it's our job to document it. And so, so I think everyone who's ever talked to me and, and, and especially Miss Lewis, cause that was hard. And I think that opened the door for other people to talk about things now. Educators, it, like the story is not going anywhere. Well, that's what I was just about to say. It's tremendous work and it's an ongoing story. And it, it really isn't over. And in respect to, you know, some of these school boards and some of the decisions that they've made and, you know, there are political consequences for it. And I think that's what we're still covering right now, generally yes. across the country. Oh, it's a democracy beat. That's what I told them at yeah. EWA. It's not your run-of-the-mill ed beat. It is, we are all on the democracy beat. So, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Nicole, we are, we are over time, but <laughs> this has been a tremendous conversation. Wonderful. I feel like we've learned a lot and there are a lot of little jewels in here for people who are listening, particularly younger journalists. We usually like to end, though, with any advice that you might have. Is there any advice that you could offer for younger journalists, particularly those that might be interested in getting in on the investigative side of reporting? Yeah, we need you. One, do not wait for permission to seek the opportunity. Get out there, take the initiative and and do the work and and seek out the people and the resources that um, they are more readily available today than ever. I have to shout out Howard University and the work that Nicole is doing there through the Journalism and Democracy Center, through the archives, through Ida B. Wells Society, NABJ, IRE, people like us, you know, just reach out to someone and say, look, how, you know, I want to do this. How do I, how do I get started? And understand that no one's path is the same. So there are lots of ways to get to it and, and your, bring your whole self to the table, that your perspective, you know, diversity means a lot of things. We, we, we keep talking about this in terms of, of race or ethnicity, or it's, it's our life experiences is what we bring to the, to the table. So bring your whole self because that's needed. Um, but yeah, know that you matter. And again, can't stress it enough. We're responsible for that first draft of history. So. Absolutely. It stays here when we're long gone. Yeah. Donnell told me this conversation would be special. And I'm so you. glad we did it. 
<laughs> told me. He told I'm me. I'm biased, but I still told you. <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much for for entertaining us on this Friday afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I'll talk to you guys soon. <laughs>